Hello, this is Chuck Sachs of Indie Opera Podcast with Louisa Prosk, one of the co founding co artistic directors of Heartbeat Opera. Hello, Louisa. How are Hi. you today? Very good, thank you. So, That's I want to know what's in the works for Heartbeat Opera right now? Well, we are one week, less than a week actually, away from starting rehearsals for our Spring Festival, which is sort of the crown jewel of our season.、Um, our season usually starts in the fall with the drag extravaganza, which we've honed and, and built as a kind of genre over the last four years, and then we continue in the spring with two full productions. And so this year,、uh, we're delighted to bring Don Giovanni and Fidelio to New York. Uh, in two brand new, newly orchestrated, in the case of Fidelio, newly translated versions,、um, both running at Baruch Performing Arts Center for two weeks in May. Yes, that's going to be May 2nd to the 13th. 13th. <laughs>、exactly. And you're also, that's being presented、uh, also as part of the New York Opera Alliance, New York Opera Fest. That's correct. correct. So, how did you arrive at your development and production process you use for the operas you present? Um, yeah, so let me back up a little bit. Ethan and I co founded the company. We're both trained theater directors. We graduated from Yale School of Drama、um, four or five years ago, respectively.、Um, so we're, we're very much trained and steeped in, in theater, but we both have、uh, very intense musical backgrounds as, as children. We played instruments, we were both in.、Uh, Opera, children's choirs when we were young.、Um, so, you know, our process very much、um, lives in that meeting space between the craft of theater. Our teams are, you know, mostly comprised of people that we either know from grad school or know from our, our freelance careers here in New York. But then, you know, we also very much think as musicians, and we have the wonderful two co music directors,、um, Jacob Ashworth and, and Daniel Schlossberg, who are a really integral part both of the、uh, choosing of the repertory and then slowly of the building of the concept around the pieces.、Um, and something that's truly unique to Heartbeat Opera is that we make、uh, new instrumental arrangements for the pieces.、Um, we kind of started that. With Daphnis and Chloe, and then really Lucia di Lammermoor in our second season was sort of a revelation for us for how we could bring something very, very unique to opera in not just making quote unquote reductions,、mm -hmm. but actually sort of reinventing the, the, the sound of the score、uh, in very, very tight dialogue with the director's concept. So, to give you a brief example, with Lucia, the, the whole opera was set in a mental asylum, a nameless woman chained to a Bed was listening to uh, Donizetti's uh, Lucia di Lammermoor on the radio, and then slowly, as she was starting to imagine the story in her mad brain, our instrumentation took over, and it was you know, comprised of、uh, electric guitar and pianos and, and percussion, and sometimes instruments that Donizetti didn't know. So then you know, it wasn't just a reduction, it was actually a reinvention of the score. And Daniel Schlossberg makes all of these.、Uh, yeah, I, I do understand the reasoning behind this. I, I've done a lot of this work in my music theater work. Yeah, it's really part of a larger conversation which we're always having, which is you know, we don't want to be the lesser version of the Met. We don't want to be the lesser version of San Francisco Opera. Those companies do what they do really well. But what can we as a, as a 
comparatively tiny company do that's completely unique that you could never see on the stage of the Met. And so one of these things is actually reinventing the scores. Another thing is to bring the musicians, as we say always, out of the pit and into the process. So, um, you know, you'll often see the musicians be not just on stage, but actually part of the visual storytelling, Mm -hmm. um, which is also something that you don't see so much in a conventional opera house. So um, both you and Ethan came out of Yale. Was there an inciting event or mentor there who also influenced your style and and the way you work? Um, Certainly there was a huge impulse for founding the company at Yale, which was that we were so lucky in being there just at the time as they started this class called the Opera Practicum, which was a joint class between the Yale School of Drama and Yale School of Music. Um, And so that meant that for about eight weeks every year, we got to spend... um, time with the Yale opera singers and uh, great master teachers. They included Christopher Alden, who was really a big inspiration to us, and also Francesca Zambello, who was wonderful, and Stephen Wadsworth, um, and Sam Helfrich. And so um, they would supervise us in creating new takes on classic scenes. We did Mozart and Handel and uh, and Donizetti, actually. Um, And so there was this amazing energy in that class of, you know, eight young hungry directors and maybe 15 singers who were tired of the same old stagings and actually really craved new interpretations and craved being directed by theater directors who come with like a very precise, um, you know, vocabulary of given circumstances and actions and all of that. So, um, you know, there was something magical about that class. And so I think at the very, very beginning, Heartbeat Opera started with sort of just a desire to bring that intimacy and novelty and kind of um, uh, excitement of that class to New York. And then, of course, many ideas added on to that. But there was definitely a huge inspiration. So you talk about how um, you work strongly in tandem with your two um, your co-music directors. Uh, how does that process go, starting, I'd say, starting at the beginning with choosing, you've made the choices of the operas, are they involved in that, that respect also in terms of choosing your season with you, and then do you all sit down and say, <clears throat> well, what do we want to do with this, what do we see that this needs? Yeah, so the four of us, Ethan, Jacob, Dan, and I, and Jennifer Newman, who's the other, the fifth uh, integral part of our, our leadership team, we go on retreat every uh, May. May or June. And so we go to a little house in the Catskills for five days and we basically put all of the pieces that we love onto the table. And we have a big debate, like, should we do Peleas et Melisande? Should we do, you know, Bluebeard's Castle? Should we do Mozart? You know, and, and some pieces we all love, but we decide they're not really right for our approach, you know? Um, like, we, I mean, we have a dream of doing Salome one day, but we're all not quite sure yet if it's mm-hmm. ever going to be a heartbeat show, you know? But, we, but every, mm-hmm. every year we, we debate fresh, and sometimes our views um, change. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's the beginning, is this retreat, and there's so many things we consider. I mean, it's the cast size. Is, is it ripe for an, a new take, an adaptation? Does it feel like it's, it plugs into something now? Do we love it? Do we love the music? Um, is Dan excited about re-instrumenting, re-orchestrating it? Um, 
you know, and then also a little bit how do the two pieces go together um, that we choose. But so, so that's the first step of the process, really. And then once we choose, which is a, a joint decision, really, I mean, we all have our opinions and favorites, but pretty organically at some point we'll land on two pieces. Um, and then comes kind of the slow cooking process. And I think for me, that's the other, one of the other absolutely unique things about Heartbeat is that, you know, we start in maybe September and then we sort of cook the adaptations and, and new arrangements all the way up until May. Um, and, and to get to work on something on, on such a slow burner and with so much um, time to uh, think and reconsider and debate and follow one instinct and then maybe maybe go a different direction um, is something very rare as an artist because um, you often have to work very fast. Um, and so we see that as one of the other great um, luxuries that we have. You know, we're not a terribly rich company with a huge budget or a huge stage, but we have that kind of wealth of um, of time and of collaborators. So yeah, yeah that that's exciting. I know. Um... That is the way I prefer to work when I work with collaborators in developing pieces um, that we all get in the room and throw it around for a while mm-hmm. and, and figure out <clears throat> sorry, where it's going, what Very it wants important. to be. Yeah, yeah, and, and give yourself room to, you know, room for misdirections, I think. And sometimes, you know, like Polonius says in Hamlet, through misdirections you find directions out, right? So, so. when do you finally set and say, okay, this is it? Is that before the first day of rehearsal, or are you still going? <laughs> well, my collaborators would probably say that I'm that I'm late in certain decisions. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm a week away from starting Don Giovanni rehearsals, and I'm still. I mean, you know, like the big ideas are there, but but within that, things shift pretty radically, and I'm I'm a very I don't know, you know, sometimes I know everything very early and sometimes there's big blind spots for me and I just have to like dream. Sometimes I have to get sick and sort of have a vision when I'm lying in bed and have a fever. You know, it's like that. I mean, you don't, you can't really control when something comes to you. So, uh, so, but that's exciting, you know, and it's kind of, again, it's, it's a luxury that in running your Mm -hmm. own company, you can create a framework where that's possible. Um, so you're always a little bit, you know, pushing against the realities of, okay, we have to order props and we have to do this and that. But there's there's room for creation. So you're directing Don Giovanni. What is your concept for this production? Um, well, you know, it's a really interesting piece to do right now. And from the very beginning, my instinct was to complicate it rather than simplify it. Because I think... For a start, you know, Mozart's and Da Ponte's operas, operas in particular, are such uh, complex, multi-perspectival universes where you have to be really dialectic in a way. Like you have to look at something from one angle and then from a different angle and then from a third angle. And that's what they're doing constantly. They're sort of constantly uh, making things more complicated. And so in a way, I wanted to embrace that with this production. So you know, I think our Don Giovanni is at certain moments going to be a very um, uh, positive, uh, inspiring, certainly 
alluring figure and then in other moments a very very dark figure um, and I think that I would like the audience to not settle on any one judgment too quickly because um, I think he's you know he's that kind of fascinating figure that can be both seen as a kind of liberator and also as a great destroyer and 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 um, you know a, a very ruthless character um but i think the piece never quite lands on any one thing so i mean in the press i'm reading it keeps mentioning that i mean you're heading into the me too um movement concept i mean on this uh i don't know where it said that i mean we're <laughs> certainly in in dialogue with the with the present moment you know but uh, it's not, we're we're trying not to make it too you know matchy matchy like mm -hmm. this is this character is this person i mean mm -hmm. i'm not interested in that because i think that i think art can be more complex than that and should sort of shy away from very very direct identifications in that way and i think the audience will then make their own connections i mean i think it's certainly a very interesting sounding board what's going on at the moment and for me i mean even before the me too movement it's always my mission to um embrace the women characters in opera I think you know a lot of the great heroines in opera have been just skewed in in conventional interpretations and so my mission is always to go back and really listen to their music and really look at their actions mm -hmm. and to sort of um you know show the audience a different uh way in and I think that in Don Giovanni in particular the three women are so complex they have so much agency in very tricky situations mm -hmm. you know but they make strong choices and so I, I will embrace that in each of the three stories I'm hedging a little bit because there's some big surprises in this production that, and I'm trying not to give them away that is fine <laughs> you have to come see it to you have find to come out. see it but um but yeah but so I, I'm hoping to have a quite um, layered and, and passionate, but not one-sided dialogue about the opera and about the character action. I, I think people will probably land on quite different sides in a way, but hopefully will have very strong reactions. And there's a big surprise some, somewhere in the middle of the production. Yeah. So I think that, that uh, you know, you will not quite be able to settle on what the production is until the very, very end. <laughs> and in that respect, uh, I mean, Ethan couldn't join us because he's up teaching in Yale right now. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me about Ethan's uh, production concept for Fidelio? Uh, it, there, too, I've read that it, it's heading towards Black Lives Matter and also in terms of dealing with the mass incarceration of people of color in this country. Is that true? Yes, that is true. <laughs> and, and there has been a lot of press about that already. We were actually on, on uh, CNN and mm -hmm. in the New York Times and, and Associated Press last week because actually um, Ethan and Dan um, did a, a trip um, around um, a, a number of states last week to visit some of the uh, prison choirs that mm -hmm. are participating in creating this famous moment in the opera when the prisoners pour out of the cells into the courtyard and... Uh, and sing this beautiful um, chorus. And so one of Ethan's first ideas, um, well, he was struck by how this story resonates so powerfully in America today and immediately thought, well, what if, you know, um, Leonora and, and Floristan are, are people of color and what if we really talk about um, the epidemic of mass incarceration in, in the U.S. today and use this opera in a very topical way. Um, and so then <clears throat> an early conversation was, well, can we actually involve incarcerated people? And so 
they were very fast in making connections to uh, uh, choirs comprised of, of incarcerated people. Um, I think they had one former teacher who was involved in a prison project, and then through her we very quickly found six choirs <laughs> who were participating, which is yes. sort of amazing. And there's a lot of uh, logistics, you know, can we record, can we film? But um, they worked on this very, very diligently. And so last week they did this beautiful trip and attended some rehearsals. And these um, incarcerated people in four different states are studying German and, <laughs> you know, learning these parts and are really excited to participate in, for many of them, their first opera um, <laughs> performance in New York City and... So I think it's generated a beautiful sense of collaboration, um, even though you know nobody will ever actually be quite in the same space together, but we'll be in a in a in a story space together. It's it's, it's still it's I mean you've come into their lives and you've come, and they've come into your lives and there's a change that's going to occur from that. Yeah, and you know I'm I'm always so moved by how great masterpieces can just lug right into the current moment, and I think we're seeing that with Fidelio. Uh, for me, having grown up in Germany, you know my family was divided between the East and the West. This piece in particular had so much resonance after the wall came down, and you know there are legendary performances in the former East in Dresden, for example, where people would actually stand up during the prisoner's choir because they identified with these people who come out into the light and, you know, leave their their cells behind for even just a moment. They identified with that so much in that moment in history um, as a people, you know, and so it's beautiful to see how it can speak to that, but then it can also speak to America today in, in I think, a way that's very, very powerful and surprising, and maybe people haven't seen the opera in that way yet, so we're so excited. Has socio-political engagement always been an intended goal of your mission, or is that kind of crept its way in once you got down to the work of working with these pieces? Well, I would say, I mean, as artists, we're living today, and we're thinking about, you know, creating theater and opera for today. I would definitely say that for Heartbeat, you know, we had a big moment of... I don't want to say awakening, because that's not right, but we, we, we had a... Um, well, there was a shock last year in 2016, you know? We had just finished our, our drag extravaganza, actually, which is a beautiful celebration of queerness and otherness and just all kinds of ways of being a human and being mm -hmm. sexual and being uh, a performer. And so, you know, just, just under a week after this kind of explosion of color and, and sequence and joy uh, came the 2016 elections, and I think we were all stunned and devastated. Um, and so we had already chosen the pieces, um, Butterfly and Carmen, and personally I can say that I pretty much threw my concept out the window. <laughs> and I started fresh with Carmen and I just thought, okay, what, how, what do I do with this piece um, now? And, you know, for me at that moment, it was really a struggle of, I didn't want to be falsely topical. Like I didn't want to just, because we're not the news, we're not you know, Saturday Night Live, we're not that kind of art form that can just react within the minute, and we shouldn't be. I think we no. should go deeper. Yes. And so, you know, in the case of Carmen, I had long debates with myself, with my designers, and so we finally landed on this idea of the border, like the story takes place as at a kind of border between cultures, between men and women, between life and death. And the border had been such a 
you know, painful topic in the elections, um, this idea of building a wall and what does that mean to build a wall between us and them and what does it mean to keep the others out and what does it mean to transgress a wall. And so that then became the, the central image of the production, which was a poetic image and it reached much further than just that political moment. I mean, for me as a German, again, it reached back to the wall too, you know. But at the same time, it could speak to um, the present moment and, you know, we'd already done the casting, but in a weird coincidence, we had, I mean, not, it wasn't totally coincidental, but we had, we had cast actually a, a Texan tenor and a Mexican mezzo. And so, um, you know, it, it sort of then did really plug into the present in a way that felt cathartic, actually, and productive and difficult and not easy. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and then back to, you know, Beethoven and Mozart, who are obviously so tied into their political moment, the French Revolution, you know, the Enlightenment thought. Um, mm -hmm. So I think something that we can do as artists in a very poetic way, not in the same way as writing an op-ed, is to sort of remind people this is one strand, one of many strands of our histories of, of you know, a moment in time where people uh, really devoted their lives to thinking politically. And so what, how can we take that on board? in our current fights and in our current struggles and because I think a lot of what you know the current administration and power elite is doing is they're trying to cut us off from our histories you know they're trying to they're trying to cut us off from our from our roots um, they're literally trying to cut down on the education that will allow us to see things from many different angles and with the history and so you know we we did really come together in 2016 and said no opera is not an elitist art form it's not something for the one percent it's something that should be for everybody and it's something that should be part of grounding us as humans and, um so so yeah so so i would say in answer to your <laughs> much earlier question <laughs> um it, it, you know I, we were political beings before that but i do think that last year we, we sort of got a, a a certain push to be more aggressive about mm -hmm. um speaking to the present um and in closing, it's, I'm, I am intrigued. What was the impetus for Heartbeat's original drag-infused events? I mean, did you have previous engagement with the drag community? And what has there been, their response been to this? Yeah, okay, so... Ethan was a drag queen and a drag a drag performer and a sort of drag organizer at Yale. <laughs> that was one of his specialties. <laughs> he actually founded the Yale School of Drag, um, which became incredibly popular. Um, so I always thought with that, given that, that we should do drag. And and I think it was we all sat in a bar one night uh, shortly after we founded the company and it kind of started as a joke. We just like wouldn't it be great to do fairy queen with real fairies and real queens? And so then we all kind of turned to each other and we're like actually this is a great idea, let's do it. Um, and then from the start we sort of said you know, it's not strict drag I mean to us drag doesn't necessarily just mean, you know, men in female makeup and wigs. It, it really means exploding uh, performance like f going for your most fabulous outrageous mm -hmm. self you know going for uh, the kind of grandeur and larger than life and silliness mm -hmm. and sexiness and eroticism that opera can have that's very much in the tradition of like and masks and right masks and, and baroque operas absolutely I mean Ferdinand and the King uh, had the one countertenor singing and their points is like they just dropped him down from the ceiling I mean, as it makes why not? because that's <laughs> That's what they did back then. Right. They they went into their stagecraft and used all of it for 
because sometimes that's the only way they could keep their audience engaged because they were more about, I'm here, right? Yeah. I'm here. See me, Ham. And it's like, no, look at the stage now. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it, it feels like that is another, another important side of opera, this kind of populist rock star, anything goes, let's celebrate ourselves, let's celebrate the, the um, you know, athlete-like stardom of opera singers, um, but let's also put them on a runway and try to touch them and stuff dollar bills into their shoes, <laughs> you know, uh, like that side of opera that we don't get to maybe plug into quite mm. as much in our very serious productions. Um, so, so the drag show became an outlet for that. And we also call it our dra our gateway drug. Um, <laughs> so we think of it as a, an event that people who like parties and mm -hmm. costuming and maybe drag or maybe you know musical theater go to. Um, and they're not they wouldn't necessarily go to an opera, but then they hear the voices mm -hmm. and they'll come back to see a full production. And that's worked quite well. Mm -hmm. So now it's also become this event that's sort of meant to mm -hmm. uh, pull in audience new audiences. That's that's wonderful. I mean, we talked about you know politics. And, and how we plug into you know a lot of the pain and the despair that's there today and I think opera can do that so powerfully because of the way that music accesses grand emotions but then at the same time there has to be that other pole of celebrating being alive right and so uh, you know, not that, I mean, we've also done comedies, of course, as full productions, but yes. the drag shows especially have that element of, mm -hmm. you know, of, of celebration and and, uh, um, and joyousness. And that's a very, very important part of opera. It is. And, and this has been a delightful conversation. And everyone should look out for Heartbeat Opera Spring Festival of Baruch Performing Arts Center, May 2nd through 13th. And then in October, their big drag fest. Their drag event, uh, which they probably haven't figured out yet. What it is. <laughs> well, we have the theme, but I'm not going to tell it to you yet. So we can all wait to be find out. So <laughs> but it's going to be amazing. Um, the tickets are on our website. It's www.heartbeatopera.org. Um, and you can also call Baruch and get them very easily. And the cheap tickets do sell out, so get them quickly. <laughs> so there we go. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.